San Francisco. This is Rochelle Rosegold. Thank you for tuning in to my show, Levels and Luster, where I combine innovative audio with communication to create social change. The term big data refers to extremely large data sets that may be digitally analyzed to reveal patterns, trends, and associations, especially relating to human behavior. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision-making, and translation between languages. Combining these things together is creating tools that are almost more powerful than we even imagined. We are living in the wild, wild west of the data revolution, and with that, there still needs to be regulations put in place to oversee corporations and protect consumers. However, this does not undermine the innovation taking place with the data and in what ways it is beneficial for society. The bottom line is, the big data train is moving forward, and the more fear and confusion around the issue, the less likely you will get a ticket to board the train, the train that is heading towards our future. In other words, if you do not include yourself in these data sets, then you will be left out of the analysis. Especially for marginalized groups, this could be devastating. This podcast series is designed to shine light on professionals using AI applied science in their fields for the overall betterment of humanity. Hello, I'm back with Professor David Guy Brizan. He is an assistant professor at the University of San Francisco and has a research background in natural language processing and machine learning. He is also the co-director of the Machine Learning, AI, Gaming Intelligence, and Computing at Scale, M-A-G-I-C-S, Lab. Hi, David. How are you? Thank you for coming on the show today. Hi, Rochelle. Thanks for having me. So in the intro, I talked about the definition of AI and big data. Can you explain what natural language processing is for our listeners who maybe don't know? Sure. Um, Natural language processing uh, really is uh, a collection of two different things, both related to computers and language. Um, So the first thing is um, natural language understanding, NLU, which means essentially that computers can understand the words we speak or the words we type or whatever or the words we write. Natural language generation is about um, computers producing language so that we can understand. So it's, it's both of those things together. So this is shaping our world in such a unique way right now because the computer is learning to talk to humans uh, and it is also this technology that can be shaping the way we talk for future generations as well. So this next question uh, is, how is this technology being used in the areas of linguistics? Uh, sure. So one of the things, um, one of the areas of linguistics that, um, that people study is how language changes over time. So if you think about, for example, the English that we used to speak during Shakespearean time, um, you can think about how different that is to the English that we speak now. So that kind of uh, language change is interesting, and we can use techniques from natural language processing to analyze those changes. And if we're innovative, I don't know how accurate we'll be, but if we're really innovative, we can use the same sort of technique to, to predict what language will look like in the future. That's, you know, that's one area of linguistics that's being, that's being influenced sort of by NLP techniques. 
there there are others. So the, a more theoretical version may be about how language operates in the human brain. Um, so uh, there's a you know one of the I think the most famous um, linguist. His name is Noam Chomsky. He believes that humans are born with the um, essentially we're born with the ability to to understand syntax and grammar. And you know that's one of the things that sets us apart from other non uh, non human animals. He he comes from one camp of of you know of um, linguistics, and his thinking is influenced how a lot of the early um, natural language processing systems have been built. A lot of folks from the like from the more mathematical side have influenced a lot more of what's going on right now. So uh, we look at um, we look at language as sort of like a statistical probability. So like uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, what about the the Sapir Whorf hypothesis saying that language determines our reality, but in but uh, it was debunked saying that language can actually. Uh, help us just better understand and explain our reality. Right. Um, that's a great example. So, um, so uh, generally speaking, um, Sapir Whorf has been used to say, has been used to explain things like, you know, people don't plan very well in languages that don't have a future tense, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been debunked, of course, like all humans plan, you know, equally well. That area of linguistics um, fits more squarely into the camp of sort of like the Noam Chomsky, like, language is built into the brain it's part of how we function that stands in opposition to more the more statistical side where we can sort of understand language as just the probability of words over you know a period of time mm-hmm. um, so the statistical side has seen a lot more a lot more tools built and a lot more systems built on top of that so for example Siri or Alexa or Google now on our phones have um, uh, are using the more statistical uh, versions of natural language processing um, rather than the symbolic version that Chomsky and, and his, his group have, um, you know, people following him have pushed forward. Uh, how does this change and shift with the ever-evolving language that we're seeing today with slang terms that come up every couple days? Is it hard to keep on top of these nuances? Um, it's, it's just about impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, <laughs> statistically. Statistically speaking, <laughs> right. Um, language in general is, is very complicated. Um, our language is complicated, right? Mm-hmm. You know, every, every chimpanzees, for example, have language. Um, but their capacity is about the level of capacity of a two-year-old child. Mm-hmm. Um, so sociologically speaking, one of the things that we find is that uh, children want to set themselves apart from their parents. And um, as a result, you'll see new words, um, new slang terms, for example, um, or even new um, new grammar, um, new syntax. And it's just about impossible to, to process that kind of language unless you understand the context of it. And that's one of the things we find in NLP is that context means so much that it's it's hard to understand language outside of the context in which it's spoken. And he's referring to NLP as natural language processing, uh, just to Thanks, reiterate uh-huh, for the listeners. And then how is this affecting our lives today? 
it's affecting our lives in many ways. I mean, like, it, you know, like on the surface, a lot of people are, are refusing to name their children Alexa just because it'll confuse. There's a little robot in our house that'll, <laughs> that'll be confused if you start doing that. But we're thinking about our houses, our lives or, you know, our phones or whatever in, in these very sort of computationally capable ways, if that makes any sense. So if our phones are intelligent, then we can offload a lot of our intelligence, a lot of our memories off onto our phones, for example. That may be, you know, a good thing or a bad thing, depending upon how you look at it. Someone once said that we can be productive at one level above the level of our tools. So if our tools become more complex, more sophisticated, it means that we as humans will, we have the ability to be even more sophisticated than we were in our previous generation prior to this technology. So it's just widening this scope of data and uh, computation that can be happening at once, which gives us the ability to reach beyond that. Very yes. interesting. Yeah, exactly right. One thing I was just thinking of is Spellcheck has a huge, <laughs> like everybody's using Spellcheck, right, on Microsoft Word on their phones and like I definitely have to go back and autocorrect myself you know instead of using autocorrect all the time just so I can see the the benefits of of uh you know spell check no it's actually a great that's a great example um so we we used to have spell checkers in the what was it in the 80s maybe and in the 90s and nowadays we've got grammar checkers mm -hmm. and so you know we as you know people can we can produce grammatically correct sentences, you know, grammatically less ambiguous sentences than before. Authors are actually using natural language generation tools in order to, you know, write sentences, write storylines and so on nowadays. And that can be really exciting because our, you know, our computers can sometimes envision things that we didn't think were plausible, feasible. It may lead us to be a more creative, more productive um, set of people. Mm-hmm. So if you're going in and using spell check, even though this computer has this huge wide range of tools with grammar and spelling, uh, but you're just clicking autocorrect, 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 are we actually using the tools to better ourselves or are we staying at the same level of the tools rather than going back manually seeing that we made an error and correcting it ourselves? Um, yeah, you're asking whether the individual becomes better or whether the society becomes better, right? Mm -hmm. The individual may not become better, but the interaction between two individuals may be a little bit smoother. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than relying on, you know, say like, you know, a group, a, a handful of experts who, you know, absolutely know what every correct spelling of every correct word is or mm -hmm. whatever, um, we're looking at you know, our computers having that knowledge, which is kind of cool. And, you know, us agreeing or disagreeing with our computers. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, there, there are lots of, you know, we try to set ourselves apart from our parents, right? And one of the, th one of the ways in which we do that is by spelling things differently. You know, I can deliberately misspell a word in order to say, you know, that's, that's you know, like an old school way of spelling. I don't mm -hmm. know, like y'all. You know, mm -hmm. but I, I choose to do it without the apostrophe or something. Mm -hmm. And there's so many, there's so much slang. Like, do you know, have you heard of Urban Dictionary? Yeah, of course. <laughs> How does that play into your field of like keeping up with the slang and all of these different crazy words? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think I'm actually too old to actually <laughs> use some of the terms in Urban Dictionary. Um, but I certainly have looked a bunch of things up, you know, um, and, and, you know, worried like, 
um, like looked at what the word, uh, I'm trying to think of like the last thing I, I looked up that I can mention on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe like Betty, you know, like a, uh, an attractive woman, for example. Um, that's, that's a bad example, but. But it's hard to find the, so you hear, you hear a new slang word and it's really hard to find a pinpoint of where that word actually came from. But if you look at something like Urban Dictionary, where it has this like public domain of votes and you can see, oh, there's statistically, all of these people are agreeing that this is this slang word. It's a little bit of statistics yeah. in there as well. I, I was just looking at the word, what was it? Uh, I think it's Joan, uh, meaning thingamajig. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so that's a word that that apparently came out of the Philadelphia area huh. and is now like mainstreamed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, the great example. Mm -hmm. Great example, Rochelle. So this technology, it's being used all over. If you've been listening to some of my last podcasts, we're talking about finance, logistics, public relations, marketing. Uh, and so this specific technology is, uh, is it being used in healthcare, or is it possibly helping with speech and speech disabilities in that area? Uh, yeah, NLP is definitely being used in um, in healthcare, both in healthcare delivery and in um, augmenting uh, folks with speech disabilities in different ways. So, if you think of uh, you know, like probably the best example would be Stephen Hawking, the fam the famous uh, physicist who's um, because of his disability, he's he's got limited uh, motion and limited speech ability. So a company uh, created a system that allows him to move, um, you know, like the muscles he does have control over and generate speech as a result, generate language and, um, you know, convert that into speech. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's like one fantastically, you know, successful example you know, but it took an army of folks to do that. And it took a lot of processing power. So it, mm -hmm. you know, my understanding about how it was built was that there was an analysis of all of the works that he had ever done up to that point, mm -hmm. that was used to create a custom language model for him. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the, the natural language generation part, that system became easier to build. Um, so doing that for, you know, everyone with some sort of like speech impediment um, is probably impractical, but, you know, I guess technically possible. In terms of healthcare, though, one of the things that we see is that healthcare outcomes, like a lot of things, um, are affected by, you know, demographic factors, right? Uh, women get poorer healthcare than men in terms of the outcomes, at least. We could, and, and you know, like there there have been systems that have been at least analyzing the outcomes based on based on the language abilities of people, based on the demographics of people, um, based on their their challenge with ability. You know, we can see that, like you know, simple things like using a phone for communication, um, you know, to generate language, to type out things uh, where people don't have the ability um, to do that. That may be um, a useful interaction with a healthcare provider. Healthcare providers tend to, they, you know, they bring their own biases into, you know, their profession, like we all do. And those biases involve, you know, like thinking about people having limited language ability as li having limited cognitive ability, mm -hmm. like conflating those two, you know, um, speech and language processing systems could be able to help there. Mm -hmm. What's coming to mind right now is the concept of transidioma, if you're familiar with that. 
Uh, it actually was coined by a professor here, Professor Marco Giacome, who studies the cultural linguistics and anthropology of communication. And it talks about the way that technology is being shaped in communication, uh, not so much with, with NLP, but uh, with someone who was hard of hearing or deaf went to the hospital and they couldn't speak what was actually happening. There is a screen that can translate from sign language to speech uh, to communicate what the issue was and different ways of translating and things like that. But it's more on a communication scope, but uh, it's definitely this this emerging kind of research and study of how technology is, is shaping the language processing of humans mm-hmm. who don't have the ability to speak on their own. Right, sure. So what is the current effectiveness of this technology, would you say? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So th- the effectiveness of, of NLP in general um, ranges depending upon who you are, so um, as in who the consumer is, right? So like white men, you know, socioeconomic, like upper class tend to see the most benefit from it. So if I speak like someone who lives in the Chicago suburbs, for example, then my phone has a better chance of understanding me um, compared to if I'm a non-native English speaker who's older, you know, much older or much younger. And so I'll give you, I'll give you a good example. Whenever, whenever I've got uh, an Amazon Echo in my house and whenever my daughter speaks to it, it just does not understand her. Mm-hmm. And whenever I do, um, it always does. And she gets really frustrated by that, you know, so she'll, she stopped talking to it and she talks to me and tells me what to say to it. Wow. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's, that's going to be the case until she starts sounding a lot less like a child, more like an adult. But in terms of the effectiveness, you know, usually my Amazon Echo device understands me, right? Um, if, I, if I talk to my Android phone, it understands me perfectly as long as I speak like this. If I speak like I'm from Trinidad, which is where I grew up, you know, until I was you know, 13 or so, it tends not to understand me as well. So basically, it's gathering data from this one type of spoken English, similar to what you'd hear on the news, like a mainstream spoken English, and then other very, vari- I like to say variations of that English, or specifically speaking uh, about the technology that we're using in America right now with Alexa and Amazon Go and all of these voice assistant devices. It's only gathering one type of way of speaking. It's not a standard way of speaking and saying others are dialects or accents because that is not really correct, right? They're different variations. There's not one standard way of speaking. So the fact is that all of the data is just being collected in in a one, just one variation of this English is making this technology not as effective as it could be, rather than opening it up to all different types of variations of English and understanding that. Yeah, that's that's about right. So we think of dialects as being sort of regional or country based. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's a dialect of English in England, and there's a dialect of English in the United States. Um, so actually, there's a lot of research by you know Lapoff and a bunch of other folks who suggests that within the United States there are different dialects. So there's a there's a northern dialect, you know, like around Chicago and Minneapolis and those kinds of cities. Um, uh, 
Pittsburgh, you know, et cetera. There's a, you know, a clear Southern one that we all think of. Um, there's one in the West, you know, there's one that's for New York by itself, apparently. You know, Boston has its own, et cetera. You know, one of the things that I found in my research is that that language difference that manifests itself as a dialect, it may apply generationally. So younger people speak differently compared to older people, or, you know, people of different races or socioeconomic backgrounds also speak, you know, somewhat differently. And all of those differences manifest themselves as a performance difference in terms of how our, our technology understands us and whether our, our technology is able to generate language that um, that's akin to what we understand or we generate ourselves. So I've called that a linguistic subculture. And I, you know, I don't know whether anyone else has adopted the term yet, but dialect is, is not exactly the right term. So uh -huh. we've had to, um, we've had to invent something different. Right, because it's it's oppressive because it's saying it's a dialect of something else. Like, but what's the standard? You know, what's what is the standard that these different, so to speak, accents or dialects are of? And that's where ineffectiveness is, I guess, in this technology is the fact that it's not including all of these different variations. Right. Yeah. There was a joke once, um, a, a joke in linguistics, um, saying that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, meaning, you know, essentially that you only become a language when you've got some political and, and you know, some political power. Um, right. You know, I don't know whether I'd go that far. <laughs> you know, definitely like, you know, some dialects have been raised to a certain level because of the socioeconomics that back that dialect. And this really is hitting the nail on the head with just the core of what my podcast is talking about with the fact that the less that we know about how we're getting this data of these devices that we're using, uh, the less that it's going to be inclusive of everybody and it's going to stick with gathering data and creating, bettering the technology based only off of a certain group of power. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of both a, a problem and an opportunity for, you know, for um, people of color like me, right? There's a bit of a discussion in the African-American community about whether we should have images of people of African descent, like, like included in, in databases that, that Google is using for image recognition. You know, on one level, you know, we don't want to be recognized as, you know, non-human people, which is something that happened. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of images of, of African-American men, for example, have been used to profile, to, um, you know, to arrest people off the streets for no good reason. Um, and, you know, like, you know, on one level, I, like, you know, I wouldn't mind being invisible to the police, but I, you know, I also don't know whether I want to be invisible to Google or not, right? Google is great at selling me ads. And, you know, I'm not especially, like, I don't really care to be advertised to. But I also want to be included in like whatever technology evolution is happening. You know, I want my voice included, mm -hmm. and that tension. You know, I you know I don't know where to draw the line on that particular question. Uh, what other concerns do you have regarding the power or the consumer privacy or societal harm with this technology? Um, well, you know, one of the things that we can do, and you know, we absolutely uh, maybe shouldn't, is. Um, infer things demographically about people. So, you know, if I speak a certain way, um, people will assume that, you know, people will assume things about my education or my background or my, you know, whatever else. And, you know, that 
that can be problematic, especially when it's conflated with things like, you know, my cognitive ability, for example, right? People will assume if I speak a certain way, I'm not as intelligent as mm -hmm. um, other folks. Um, so, uh, and we absolutely have the power to infer, like, you know, demographics from speech, from the way people type, etc. That really, like, bothers me in terms of, like, the ability that we have to, to do certain um, to perform that kind of calculation and then to infer certain judgments on people based on that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we, we, you know, we have this ability, we have this technological ability, and I'm hopeful that we use it for good things like, you know, helping people learn, you know, expanding people's horizons in terms of informing people about things that are happening, you know, far away, close by, or whatever that influence our lives that we care mm -hmm. about. Um, and I'm hoping that we don't use it for things like better ads for, you know, like things that some company thinks that I want mm -hmm. and usually don't. Mm -hmm. So this might be a per more personal question, but do you have <laughs> an Alexa in your house? Yeah, I absolutely do. My uh, my wife decided to to buy one and I was kind of opposed to having like a big microphone in my house the whole mm -hmm. time. Um, but I, I kind of like the ability to play music from, you know, whatever generation, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever. And, you know, from different cultures and different societies and so on. Mm -hmm. I as well ha have a device in my house and it just is very convenient. Everything is hooked up to it. The nest, the and you can just sit on the couch and say, turn the light on, turn the heat up, <laughs> play the music, order me a pizza. You know, it's so... <laughs> The convenience aspect, and I think that is really what is driving, obviously, this technology, which just is how convenient it is in the house, I think definitely is a benefit. But we have to weigh that with, you know, if it's going to cause us more harm in the long run or invade our privacy. Sure. We've been looking at, um, you know, there are many cases in which we've seen, you know, we there's a trade-off between um, our our individual privacy mm -hmm. and our convenience. You know, mm -hmm. the convenience that the devices bring to us, mm -hmm. and um, you know, there's a it, people have drawn that line at different places depending upon what they're comfortable with or how much they know about what's going on. So personally, we have one um, one Alexa in our living room, and you know, that's the only device that that's the only always on device that I've allowed in in my home uh, you know my phone is always on I guess um, mm -hmm. but you know I try to keep it away from you know like the more uh, personal spaces in our house so the bedrooms the bathrooms etc mm -hmm. mm. so yeah that's where I've drawn my line you know yeah. other people will draw it in different places I guess it just comes down to personal choice right you know? right and which ways would you like to see it being used to benefit society and enable social justice? That's a fantastically good question. I'm not sure that I have a, like a, a wholly satisfying answer for you, but, you know, there are things that, there are things that we care about as a society. For example, I, you know, I think most people in this country would believe that anyone who lives here, any, you know, like any citizen of this country shouldn't go like hungry or starving or whatever. And having, having information about that, you know, come to us, like where we are, where we are able to help other people, um, where we choose to do that is, 
is useful. It's, you know, having that information come to us is, is useful. We can think right now of, um, for example, most people have email and most people have some email with some sort of like spam filter built in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't, you know, we didn't individually train the spam filter like, you know, this is spam, this is ham. And, you know, we have to some degree, like, you know, if we record some individual piece of mail as being spam, then, um, you know, we're contributing to that training. That's a way of, of having us focus our attention on the things that are important or ignoring the things that are not important. And having that at, a, at sort of like a level of, you know, a tool level above just like this individual message is important or not um, to something like this news story is important or not or this thing that's happening in my society is important or not. Um, you know, that's where I'd like to see a lot of our natural language processing tools um, go. You know, there are also things in terms of NL, natural language generation. Um, you know, we have the ability, uh, you know, as, as people, we have the ability to be creative. So a lot of our creative arts, you know, like in writing, in music and so on, can actually be augmented by, you know, things like the tools that we're building right now. Um, and, you know, that's where I'd like to see us as humans go. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving an insider look at this technology for the listeners. Thanks, Rochelle. Levels and Luster is produced solely by Rochelle Cornelius at the KUSF College Radio Facilities in San Francisco, California. Tune in to KUSF.org today to hear the latest independent music first. Follow me on social media at Rochelle Rosegold, spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E, Rosegold, one word, for updates on my latest projects. Thanks for listening.